This is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. The internet is a network of networks. It's built across fiber, satellite, subsea cables that span the globe. It seems really resilient. There isn't a single off switch, but you already knew that. What we don't talk much about is the infrastructure that supports it, and to some degree, its vulnerability. This week, I invited Vinay Nagpal to come help us to understand why the infrastructure matters so much to us. Vinay is the president of Interglobics, a data center and fiber consultancy group. He's the executive director and founding member of the Internet Ecosystem Infrastructure Committee. He's heavily involved in a wide range of industry boards and advisory roles. In other words, he knows what he's talking about. So join us for a really cool conversation on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Hey, in a little bit, we're going to talk about an event that we're going to, um, that you're leading and I'm going to be attending back in, uh, or upcoming in November. But before we get to that, there's this idea of um, the resilience of the internet. So when I talk to people who are not, not just not in IT, because I, IT people hold this idea that um, the internet is wildly resilient. It would be very, very difficult to impact meaningful um, components of it in, in, you know, to affect traffic flow. And it seems like only people that are very close to internet infrastructure know, actually, it's got a, it, it has a number of vulnerabilities. And we're going to talk about sort of the organization that you helped to lead um, and some of that conversation later. But is that a, is that a, that addresses that, is that a false premise or how resilient is it? Maybe that's where we can start off with. How resilient is the internet? Yeah, sure, Dave. I guess, I mean, first things first, you got to realize internet is a network of networks, right? At the end of the day, there's no single governing body that controls the internet globally per se. Of course, right. you know, there are in-country laws and uh, regulations and so on and so forth. But in essence, if you think about it, how the internet came about, uh, you know, it was really networking a set of computers together, connecting that network to another network, connecting that network to a third network, so on and so forth. And along the way, you know, you have, of course, fiber cables that are connecting the networks together then you have metro fiber, then you have long haul fiber, then you have subsea fiber, which is basically connecting different countries, different continents together. So while the internet seems to just work magically, work all the time, well, most of the time, right. um, you know, yes, there are inherent risks associated with it. Um, from an infrastructure perspective, uh, you know, as you as you'll notice and hear about infrastructure companies that are constantly upgrading the underlying infrastructure that the internet runs on, I think that is that is a key to kind of all the applications that ride on top of it. Um, and uh, the resiliency of the internet really comes from diversity, how diverse the routes are. You know, by default, the internet runs on TCP IP protocol, which is the transmission control protocol, internet protocol, which was invented over 50 years ago um, by Vint Cerf uh, and Bob Kahn. 
And Vint is known as one of the fathers of the internet for that reason. Mm -hmm. And Dave, the essence behind that is like, you know, when you pick up a phone, like a plain old telephone line, a mm -hmm. POTS line and call someone, that's a circuit switching network. So if I'm calling you, if you're sitting in Kansas City, I'm in Virginia, and if I'm calling you on the phone, Dave, that entire circuit is at that point occupied with our conversation. Right. The same, the same communication, if I'm emailing you, that's a packet switching network. My email gets broken down into hundreds of small packets of zeros and ones. It gets magically to you, by the way, following different routes along the way, gets put, to, put together and what you see is this email from Vinay, which says, hey, Dave, I'm looking forward to our conversation today. So that inherent nature of packet switching network is also a, a component of resiliency, which is based on the TCPIP protocol that Vintsurf uh, co-invented, which is where if one route is not available, some of those packets for the same email will take a different route. Ultimately, they'll get to the destination, they'll get put together. So there are these couple of nuances associated uh, with the underlying infrastructure and how the internet works. So if I think about that for a second, this morning, I had a 9 a.m. appointment in downtown Atlanta. And because I know how traffic works in Atlanta, I left my area probably quarter after seven. It was a 35-minute ride, supposedly. And about a third of the way there, maybe halfway there, the entire freeway stopped because a couple semi-trucks crashed, spilt fuel all over the freeway. And I heard just a little while ago that they've just now finally got it moving. So in this scenario, no, it's kind of like that phone call. It'd be there is a packet, one thing traveling to a destination, and it got interrupted. There was no way to complete that. In the scenario you're talking about, if we had said, look, we're going to divide uh, Dave or whatever, this thing up into five packages, and they're going to um, they're going to head towards your destination. Oh, the freeway's blocked. We're going to get off or we're a reroute. This one's going that road, whatever. They swarm. They take different routes because um, they were smarter and used ways instead of Google Maps, and it told them early enough to get the heck off of the freeway. No bitterness here. The, and and then they reconvene, maybe delayed because they ran into some congestion, but they all showed up at the address, then they would assemble themselves in the right order, and then, boom, my package is delivered. Is that a inelegant but accurate description of the difference between the two? That is a very fair description, I would say, you know, just okay. primarily honing in on the fact that when that traffic interruption happens – those packets are constantly like monitoring, hey, what's happening? What's going on with this route? And the right. moment they sense that they need to take a different route, they just do that right away and get to the final destination. And of course, they're even getting to that final destination at different times, by the way, different times we're talking about in milliseconds. Right. So so we we don't realize that whether <sighs> they're they're traveling, you know, across the street, across the country, or around the world. You know, there is a concept called latency, uh, but but for for all practical purposes, they, the packets are traveling pretty fast. They get to the final destination. They get all put together and, and the recipient sees that email. In my experience, the only time I people really worry about latency is, um, I shouldn't say the only time, but the most common in my world is gaming. 
if I'm doing, you know, I'm online racing, I'm doing a, a first person sort of either a shooter or I'm an elf fighting the orcs or whatever it is. And it, you know, this, this magic dance is important to happen instantaneously. If there's latency, um, it's a problem. As opposed to, for example, streaming Stranger Things at the soccer field, once a sufficient buffer has built up, I, I could probably stream it okay because it's it's just built up a big cache of data that is just going to start flowing from my device. But let me ask you this, I guess. One of the things that I'm curious about that I don't know that I've ever really gotten a solid answer if I have, I, I don't remember it. This comes, you're talking about routes, which presumes there's routers. There's physical hardware devices that direct the traffic. In air traffic control lately, I, I have yet to have this happen to me, but I've had this happen to a whole bunch of people that travel a lot like I do. And because of post-COVID effects on the job, uh, on the marketplace, on everything from mechanics to air traffic controllers, et cetera, flights have been canceling, canceled. There have been significant delays and interruptions way beyond the normal weather, et cetera. It's, it's, it's because the routers, the air traffic controller or whatever, um, has been so affected. I think we're getting a little bit better, but they've been so adversely affected is it possible that if you go high enough up the stream that there is, what, I don't know, 100 routers, 5,000 routers, that you could impact a significant number of the routers, maybe not around the world, but in North America or in Europe or in, uh, you know, maybe narrower than that, but that that um, there isn't an easy route around, maybe not an impossibility, but it's so significantly delayed that um, it makes – our network traffic very vulnerable? Yeah, I guess, I mean, it's all relative, right? When you talk about network congestion, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you have obviously routers at the end of the day are physical networking equipment that have processing capability with a lot of intelligence built around it, right? Mm -hmm. So if you peak that processing capability, it's just gonna slow down and starts adversely affecting the traffic versus the traffic automatically getting quote unquote rerouted, right? Mm -hmm. So you do you do occasionally see that. You do also occasionally see uh fiber cuts happening, right? Which obviously is like, you know, you're 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 sort of you know breaking part of a road. And obviously right. there's no way for traffic to flow flow further until there's physical repair done. That happens both with the terrestrial fiber and subsea fiber as well. But of course, you know, the equipment has its own limitations, which the equipment manufacturers are constantly working on sort of add-on cards, additional chassis, new equipment. And that's where, you know, when I was mentioning in my opening remarks about upgrading the infrastructure, you know, upgrading the hardware itself, you know, mm -hmm. comes as a key component of it. Then, of course, you have the at the physical layer, you have the actual fiber cables that are carrying the traffic and we talked about the fiber cuts. So yeah, I mean, there is there is a certain threshold, uh, you know, that if reached, the, the that adversely affects the traffic. I guess, um, and this is an area maybe maybe you're not interested in talking about, but I, I'd be curious. There are parts of the world. There's some that are in conflict. That are some where, um, you know, for whatever geopolitical reason, 
more of the the routers either are down because the buildings are in are damaged or because the aggressor is turning them off or whatever house i guess i'm i i just don't know how susceptible if i'm you know ukraine or that part of the world or e- any conflict kind of world part of the world how easy is it for traffic to reroute or is it that you know, a, one of the major countries on Earth, the United States, um, other superpowers like us that, that have a lot of um, either control or influence on the way the infrastructure works, how vulnerable is the world to having some of those components turned off for something other than just network uh, congestion? Or is that a misnomer? We really aren't, short of the building blowing up, we really aren't that vulnerable. Yeah, <laughs> Actually, the building blowing up has um, alternatives when there is a self-healing component of the network, which again, traffic gets rerouted to the yeah. other interconnection in location uh, for that matter, because the whole purpose of a building for that, in, for the purpose of this conversation is where the interconnections take place right. if there is a proper interconnection ecosystem built up, right? Uh, but when it comes to you know the geopolitical aspect of things that you were talking about, as I mentioned earlier, there is no single entity that governs the internet or controls the internet globally. Mm. Now, of course, as the internet traverses through a particular country, and when I when I say traverses, I mean again, it's physical infrastructure that's entering a country, as right. in, you know, subsea cables like the one I'm holding in my hand that wow. enter a country through the ocean and then ultimately goes on threat on the uh, public roads. Uh, through these terrestrial fiber cables. So, um, and where the routing is happening now within that country, you know, every country has a set of IP addresses that are assigned through a central governing body that assigns the IP addresses. Um, and and to some extent, you know, the government has a role to play. Like if they want to have, uh, you know, internet impacted, let's say as an example for the entire country, Mm -hmm. They've got to look at where the subsea cables are landing, where the interconnection hubs are, who the local ISPs are. So a number of of factors have to be taken into consideration Mm -hmm. to take effect on that. Now, uh, uh, we also hear about certain type of traffic being, quote unquote, blocked. You know, so you hear that as well. That's happening on a port level. You know, you basically block a particular port. What's a a port port, port for someone who doesn't know what it is? Yeah, think of it as... You know, we're we're hitting each other at a particular frequency right now. So think right. of port as different frequencies, and you have different applications. Like if you're using Facebook, if you're using WhatsApp, if you're using Instagram, if you're using email, all of these applications work on different ports. Okay. So let's say in a given country, they choose to block port XYZ, which mm-hmm. impacts a particular application. So that particular application will be impacted in a particular country. Can the government do that? Yes, it's doable. Can they do it completely? Is it a foolproof system? Yes and no. You know, mm-hmm. It all depends on how the ISPs are routing the traffic, how the interconnection is taking place. And it's an iterative process. I mean, they've got to be really added to shut something down, whether it's for the entire country or mm-hmm. whether it's at a port level for a certain application. You flashed a moment ago, I don't want to miss it, um, the uh, subsea cable. Can you pull that uh, back up? Can we look at that? What are we looking at when we see that? Yeah. That is what crosses the ocean of the world, that little strand? 
So, so this this uh, cable actually uh, is a sample of uh, the first subsea cable that landed in the Commonwealth of Virginia. It's manufactured by uh, a company called TE Subcom, which is now called Subcom. Mm-hmm. Um, they primarily um, uh, specialize in manufacturing this cable. And and yes, if you see on the screen where my finger is, yeah. these are fiber strands that are thinner than human hair and a thousand times stronger than human hair. So it's it's really glass. Think of it as empty glass. And mm-hmm. when that we were talking about that email that I, I sent you, yeah. when I send you that email, one, it's broken into small packets. The small packets are zeros and ones. And they're basically going through this fiber, this fiber cable in different colors of light. So mm-hmm. the networking gear we were talking about really breaks down into hundreds of different colors of light in which different zeros and ones are traveling. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really in essence how it works. And, and in terms of the form factor, this is, so as I said, a sample of the first subsea cable to land in the Commonwealth of Virginia, which was the Maria cable uh, in 2017 that was co-owned by Facebook, Microsoft, and Telsius. Telsius is a Spanish uh, telecommunications company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, you know, since then, even in the last five years, there have been upgrades in terms of the number of fiber strands. So this is 16 fibers or eight pairs. Now you hear about 20 fibers, 24 fibers. That's the physical media. Mm. Then you also have the ability to kind of how much how much content you're able to push through these um, through these fiber strands, right? So the capacity of the Maria system itself was upgraded from, I think initially it started at like 160 terabits per second. It got upgraded to upwards of 200 terabits per second. And uh, and how that happens is basically the equipment, networking equipment we were talking about, you upgraded both the ends and that's what's pushing more data within these same physical media. And as I said, now you have higher count fiber cables manufactured as well by different manufacturers. I have a very loose understanding of it, but it, when I listen to some of the network folks, they talk about, you were talking about frequencies before, that they're able to create these highly secure, you can't jump from one frequency to the other, these highly secure fractions. You could take that beam of light. This is where it starts blowing my mind. That's why I like to hook up you know, electricity. It can just kill you, but it doesn't confuse you. So I'm pretty good with storage and compute and uh, electricity or whatever, but they, they fractionalize that strand because what, what you were showing us there, that's tiny, and to think that that's serving part of a continent um, amount of data, like a whole sections, if not whole continents. I, once upon a time, that's probably more uh, capacity than the entire uh, European continent um, and probably more even than Africa needs at the moment. But And now maybe it's a country size because we, we generate more and more data. You know, we get more and more ability to make data. We make more and more data. That's what we do. But it's amazing as you showed that example, if you could show it on the screen, I think that'd be pretty cool. Again, that small thing right there is the ability to distribute stranger things to the world or the World Cup or whatever across something that small and to do it in this fractionalized manner with these various colored light forms. Does does that ever just blow your mind that we put something like that together? 
Yeah, and I think that's the that's the beauty of technology and how it really works um, in terms of uh, the amount of data. So the Maria cable, uh, again, 16 fiber strands across the Atlantic Ocean from Bilbao, Spain to Virginia Beach, which is roughly around 6,600 kilometers, 4,000 miles, can transmit every movie ever made in 4K in every language in 42 seconds. So, I mean, um, yeah, and by the way, we don't stop there. After Maria was Brusa, which is a second cable that came from Brazil, uh-huh. from um, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Brazil, with, with branching units in Fortaleza and uh, Puerto Rico and San Juan coming to Virginia Beach. And then the third cable, so Brusa was fully owned by Chelsea. The third cable was the Dunant cable that came from St. Hilaire in France to Virginia Beach. The Dunant cable, which is the latest one to land in Virginia, uh, supports traffic upwards of 300 terabits per second. What does that mean? The entire Library of Congress digitized three times over across the Atlantic in one second. On the one hand, it seems like that's an impossible amount of capability and we will never use it. On the other hand, because I watch my kids make cat videos and I see what happens. And just for me, I was at the a race called the Motocross of Nations where the people from around the world come, in this case, the United States. It's a race held every year. And I looked at how much data I made with my crummy little phone filming all these people to people who will never watch it again, but I, I wanted to share it and record it. Um, I could see how in the not too distant future, if we don't have the ability to easily upgrade this infrastructure, it could get overwhelmed, not 20 years from now, but sooner than that. Um, Or the other thing, as I think about it just now, is how, in spite of all of these amazing providers' um, uh, precautions, how vulnerable, if I'm just landing at at some subsea sites, you know, in a few uh, points on these continents... Are we are we physically vulnerable? Are we um, uh, logistically vulnerable to uh, you know cyber attack? I mean, and the reason why I ask that is over and over and over I hear more and more countries. This round this rang much truer in January of 2022 than it did in February of 2022. Countries didn't particularly invade each other. I still think that's probably going to be the norm globally. At least let's hope but that they would exert their will through affecting how data moves around the world one way or the other. So as you think about these subsea cables that have this amazing capacity, um, what is the complexity? I guess I have two parts. What's the complexity to upgrade it over time? You were start, I think you started talking about the optics at either end. And then the second part is by concentrating in particular areas, does this make us more vulnerable or are we – is that much ado about nothing? And we know how to mitigate any of those risks. Yeah, so um, I think it's important to understand that, um, um, you know, even in the Commonwealth of Virginia, I mean, of course, it's a known fact, Virginia is the leading data center market globally. Um, Yet until 2017, there was not a single subsidy cable landing in Virginia. What does that mean? So, Anytime, let's say, to draw an analogy, if you had to fly from Virginia to London, you had to first fly either to 
New York, New Jersey region or to Miami in Florida and then catch the flight to London because that's where the current or the then existing landing stations were for these subsea cables. Mm. Uh, when Hurricane Sandy hit, uh, and of course, unfortunately hit pretty hard, that's when uh, really the industry uh, was very, very particular about diverse landing of subsea cables. So the mid-Atlantic region really came into picture, uh, you know, again, driven by uh, Facebook and Microsoft and then Telsys mm-hmm. joined, joined hands with them. So that was that's really how the first subsea cable, uh, you know, sort of landed in, in Virginia Beach uh, mm-hmm. as a diverse location. Now, within Virginia Beach, that cable, there's existing uh, infrastructure in Camp Pendleton. That's where the uh, existing three subsea cables land. There's a total of four conduits, which have four bore pipes. I mean, literally, these are bore pipes going into the Atlantic Ocean. The other end, are, you know, is basically front haul back to uh, a cable landing station in, in uh, Corporate Landing Parkway in Virginia Beach, um, from where the traffic is then sort of mostly routed to an aggregation point in Sandston or in Henrico County, which is where the NAP or the network access point is. Mm-hmm. But the diversity aspect is so important that, of course, there are, from a subsea industry perspective, Dave, there are talks about additional subsea cable, uh, cables landing in Virginia Beach, but mm-hmm. the industry is like, it has to be a diverse location from Camp Pendleton. We don't necessarily want to land right there. So Sandbridge is another location that's um, you know on the table. And of course, there's ability to add more capacity to the Camp Pendleton landing itself. Now, your other part was, I mean, if you look, so Marseille is a classic, uh, I call it a role model for subsea cable landings. Um, uh, by in the next next two or three years, uh, it's expected uh, that Marseille will have 21 subsea cables. Now, I had the opportunity to visit the landing station there and um, I met with the Port Authority of Marseille. They have diversified the landings in terms of, you know, even in that region, they have different areas where these cables are landing. And then of course, uh, you know, you have data centers uh, primarily interaction, uh, which is now a part of digital realty, um, you know, which is a major data center operator in that region that's there. So the cables are landing, you have cable landing stations, uh, PFEs or power feed equipment. By the way, if you see uh, right in the middle here, um, yep, each of it. these cables uh, are powered every 60 to 70 uh, kilometers for regeneration uh, where you have the the amplifiers which are regenerating the signal. So there is electricity sent through the middle of the cable here, which is uh, uh, which is you know pretty cool if you if you look at the construct of the cable itself. So power feed equipment is what's providing power from both ends of the ocean really you know to to that system. So mm-hmm. the signal can be regenerated. Then there is networking equipment like we were talking about earlier, SLTE or submarine line transmission equipment that's basically, you know, then taking that capacity that's coming in, distributing it further, so on and so forth. So, um, so from from a from a diversity perspective, that's extremely important. Mm-hmm. So the industry is looking at new geographical regions to land cables within a particular region, having diversity, uh, you know, for uh, what's called as a beach manhole, which is where you know these cables actually come ashore from the ocean. 
and then taking diverse routes to different cable landing stations or to some extent data centers directly where it makes sense. You know, that's where there is a paradigm shift where you're seeing convergence of the subsea cables and data centers directly because there's so many use cases where that traffic, because if you imagine, like I was talking to you earlier about 300 uh, terabits per second, that mm -hmm. traffic is not going to stay at one place. It has to be distributed in different places. Right. So if you are able to have a location where you have multiple cloud on ramps, where you have content distribution networks, where you have um, local access networks or ISPs, eyeball networks, you know, obviously it gives that capacity of that subsea cable a lot more avenues, options to be sending traffic, so to speak, right? And that's where you see this convergence happening between data centers and the subsea industry. I'm going to go back to ports for a second. As you were talking, it got me thinking about this. One of the things that we're dealing with right now is, and I don't want to, I started to mention a particular port. I don't think that's fair to that port, but one of the consequences of just the global situation is that ports are, um, they're backed up. And so we've, we've realized in the States anyway, that's the only one I can probably speak, not authoritatively, but have some knowledge about there's maybe a dozen really important ports. And of those, there's probably five or six. Savannah, um, up in uh, the Maryland area, New York, LA, uh, Seattle, Portland, Houston. Um, those are the ones that occur to me that are um, super important. And then somebody pointed out, um, I can't remember if it was uh, Chicago or Detroit, but one of the major ports on the Great Lakes. I mean, like, don't forget the Great Lakes. But anyway, they've all been impacted, L.A. in particular. I said I wasn't going to name a name, but I'm going to talk about L.A. is probably the, the most well-known impacted. I'm wondering, as we talk about subsea cable, um, are we vulnerable in the same way? How many? How, first of all, how many subsea landing sites, significant ones? I don't mean every one in the world, but are there a dozen? Is there 50 of them? How many are there? And are we... Is it possible that we could be vulnerable, not for the same cause because of manpower shortage and supply chain and, you know, um, the mechanisms that are causing challenges that they're working through, they're figuring it out and they're working through them. But with that same idea that these are very um, valuable real estate areas that these unexpected interruptions happen and now it's really caused delay, everything from medicine to food to whatever, could we have that same... Um, impact or the same risk with subsea landing where we're trying to distribute our connectivity? Yeah, so um, when it comes to the physical cables itself, there are roughly around 530 subsea cables around the world today. Really? Um, and I had no and, idea. And by the way, uh, the next uh, statistics is from FCC. 99.7% of all international traffic traverses on subsea cables, not on satellite. 99.7%, of course, satellites are, are good and effective for you know specific uh, niche uh, use cases. Right. Um, in terms of landings itself, there are roughly around 1,200 cable landing stations around the world. Uh, and when you look at you know, the, aggregate, um, the aggregate length of the ca these cables that are laid on the ocean mm -hmm. around the world, we're talking roughly around 1.3 million kilometers. Wow. That's, but 
but so you don't feel like, I mean, if we're talking about hundreds of sites, obviously some sites are going to be more important than others, Cornwall in England and um, uh, the sites up in uh, New York and in Miami, pretty important. Uh, Virginia Beach now becoming fantastically important. Is, is there a, is there a um, in the same way that in a metropolitan area, we're adding more and more carrier hotels. We don't, in the big hyperscalers, so when I say hyperscale for our audience, we mean the Googles, the Microsofts, the Apples, et cetera. The, the world's largest buyers, usually in the um, e-commerce or social media or cloud compute space, one of those big providers um, or software platform providers. And they are, um, in fact, interestingly enough, when you mentioned the folks who are helping to fund the landing of the sea cable there in uh, Virginia Beach, 20 years ago, that would have been Verizon, AT&T, a telecom provider. And now it's these partnering with other uh, entities, but it's these big content uh, platforms that are helping to fund a significant number of them, it sounds like. But it, is it are, is there a importance? When I talk to a hyperscaler today... They want to make sure they've got not just two or three physical locations in the greater Atlanta area. They want one outside of town. They want one 100 miles from town. Like they want geographical diversity within a certain latency range. Do you think that emphasis is going to come from the not just that we have more cables landing at a particular site, but that I got a site every 100 kilometers or so to make sure that no single one, for whatever reason, um, is going to significantly impact, um, or at least not have a, an easy fix to reroute, and easy being qualitative, but I can route around it. If I can't land at Cornwall, I can come in at Liverpool, or I can come in at you know at London, or whatever, I can route around that. Yeah, so uh, you made a very good point there earlier when you were saying that uh, the telcos or the telecommunications companies, uh, you know, Back in the day, 12, 16, uh, I've seen as, as many as 20 companies coming together, forming a consortium and uh, building a subsea cable, doing feasibility analysis, doing desktop study, doing route analysis, traversing international waters, having obviously multiple legal teams involved. Oh, by the way, we are already six years into the process. Right. So uh, go figure. Um, so what happened, the example I gave you with uh, the Maria Cable, mm -hmm. that project was completed in uh, roughly around two years. Three entities involved, Facebook, Microsoft, and, and uh, Telsius. Dunant Cable, wholly owned by Google. Hyperscalers, as you define them, the Google, Microsoft, Facebooks right. of the world, uh, are also what they call as the private cable. Now, in that case, of course, you need a landing party at both the ends. So in case of Dunant, which lands from France to Virginia, in France, you have Orange, the telecommunications company in France, mm -hmm. who Google has partnered with in Virginia. You have Telsius. Well, they're a Spanish company, but guess what? They had the infrastructure in Camp Pendleton that I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. where uh, you know the four conduits were built into the beach manhole going into the ocean. So that infrastructure could be utilized, you know, when it comes to being a landing party. Um, and I think that's where you see that significant paradigm shift has happened in the last five plus years where forget 16, forget 12. You have one single company now owning a subsea cable. Oh, and by the way, 
they are leasing capacity to the carriers. Just this last week, Lumen leased capacity on uh, Grace Hopper, which is another Google cable um, going from uh, Europe to uh, New Jersey. Um, and and that's that's the, the 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 reality today. And the reason for that is actually very, very straightforward. And it's a it's a multifaceted um, um, uh, you know landscape that has changed. When it comes to the hyperscalers, well, of course, the hyperscalers are building their data centers as well. Well, mm-hmm. they're building the data centers for themselves. Mm-hmm. Yes, they're leasing data center capacity as well mm-hmm. from data center providers like QTS and mm-hmm. others. But the need for their cloud services is constantly increasing to the point that they need more capacity. Oh, and by the way, when you need when you need more capacity from a data center perspective, they need more capacity to get the data from point A to point B. And that's where just pure economics, it just doesn't work out to lease capacity versus build your own. And you know how much data you need to to traverse from point A to point B. And that's the reason hyperscalers have gotten into the subsea industry. And as I said earlier, they're innovating. They are... um, you know, pushing the cable manufacturers, the equipment manufacturers, oh, and they are leasing capacity to the carriers as well. So, right. you know, it's just it's just completely turned things around. Well, they have the cash. They also have some really smart people that work for them. And one of the things that I love about this idea, for another conversation, we could talk about the risk, and I, I'm a big fan of all of these hyperscalers, but the risk of having... Um, any particular infrastructure controlled by a smaller group of people has got a certain number of risks in it. But um, I'm certain those are, uh, you know, our governments are working to make sure we mitigate and manage the risks. But where I was going with it is I've seen them do this where, um, for example, we've had to innovate in how we deliver power. They want a certain type of power. And by power, I mean um, a certain efficiency from us if we're using uh, for providers like ourselves, whether we're using fossil fuel or we're using renewable or whatever, and they're bringing their buying power and their requirements to the industry, and we've got to adopt and change in order to continue to be uh, providers for them. And, and by the same way, I see them in the um, in the connectivity side of things. They can move way faster than the three or four, eight bureaucracies, even if those other organizations have money. They can innovate they quicker. They iterate quicker. They can get partnerships quicker. And they can move much simpler. And it is a complex – you know, we sit here and just talk about this subsea idea as if, hey, it's no big deal and it's this thing. Not just the technology itself, but to lay these cables – that are going to be self-powering and upgradable across the harshest environment inside this atmosphere with all of the pressure, with all of the erosion, with all of the things. It's harsher than Antarctica all the way from one end of the world to the other, and it has to deliver performance for a significant period of time. Uh, it's uh, it's amazing the endeavor that they that they go about and the machines the ships that they use and or they commission to do this I mean it's it's phenomenal so I to me it makes sense it's just a unique point in time where where it was this whole big industry before and now the the marketplace has found a way to 
to uh, to deliver. To I think I since I love innovation and I love to see adroit smart people work. I think that's that's a a great example of it. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Um, you know, you were earlier talking about uh, data and how much data is generated and consumed. I touched on the um, hyperscalers and their cloud services, how enterprises are outsourcing their workloads to whether it's public cloud, private cloud, or hybrid cloud. At the end of the day, again, economies of scale just work in that uh, direction that it makes sense to outsource the compute. But with that said, the digitalization that's happening in every facet of the industry, um, both from a business perspective and of course, in our personal lives as well, that's really driving that data creation. Um, when I first uh, read the number 2.5 quintillion bytes of data created every day, I'm like, I don't know what quintillion bytes is. <laughs> so I looked it up. Right. One quintillion byte is one million terabytes, which is one billion gigabytes. So I I did the math. The laptop I'm using right now has one terabyte of hard drive, which is pretty common. Right. Um, it's not that new laptop, but one, one terabyte of hard drive. So every minute, 700 terabytes of data is generated every minute. So 700 of these laptop worth of data is generated constantly every that every every minute. That's new right. data created. So imagine, I mean, it's pretty simple. People talk about applications. People talk about data centers. It's like, of course, you need more data centers. You need data centers in multiple places around the world. You know, whether it's um, you know wholesale data center, retail, edge facilities. There's a there's an inherent need for safe, secure, reliable, highly connected location for this compute to take place. That's right. where data centers come into play. Then the other thing is you gotta get the data from point A to point B, not to oversimplify it, but you have the fiber cables, you have the cell towers. So of course the cell towers play a role. The moment we pick up this device, everything right. works. You can see probably better, better right. now, right? How does it work? And of course, you know, there, there are, you know, cell towers that are all around us that are making it happen. There's backhaul fiber going to the central office. So in this hyper-connected world, at the essence, the more data we are generating, consuming, you need more underlying infrastructure, you need more data centers, you need more subsea cables. It's, it's, it's actually pretty simple, very straightforward, if you ask me. By yeah. the way, by the way, in four years, from 2016 to 2020, 107 of those 530 subsea cables were installed, brand new, 107. And that was roughly $13.8 billion of value creation. Hmm. Between this year, 2022, and next year, 23, another $8 billion uh, worth of investment is being done. It's underway in subsea. I'm just talking subsea cables. Right. So, um, so just, you know, imagine that uh, the infrastructure is, is underlying infrastructure is what makes it all work. You can talk all day about connected cars, autonomous cars, connected homes, smart cities, IoT, VR, AR. All of those are great. 
You need the infrastructure to support those applications. Um, you know, a few months ago, um, I visited uh, a friend of mine's single family house. Uh, he was showing me these new appliances, a garage door opener, microwave, fridge, all of that, you know, IP enabled. Uh, on his phone, he shows me he had 54 IP addresses. And I was like, wow, 54. Um, then I was in London. Um, recently, I met with Mike Tobin, a dear friend and an industry pioneer. Uh, he says, Vinay, I got 214 IP addresses in my house. <laughs> so that's that's really kind of where we are headed, like, you know, in terms of, you know, whether it's light bulbs, whether it's, um, you know, garage door openers uh, or what have you. And, and, you know, what we know today is limited by our thinking, our knowledge. Well, you made a point earlier in terms of, you know, where we are headed I mean, mm. I say where we are headed as a society, as a civilization, our reliance, our dependency on digitization and this infrastructure is so significant and continues to be so significant. It's no less uh, than uh, electricity, water, gas. That's why it's called, you know, the fourth utility. There's a reason mm-hmm. for that. And it's it's pretty, pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. Uh, dystopia and fear not commented on just other than electricity it is I think the single most impactful um, I think that's how it's going to prove technology is this idea of this connectivity you know I I don't have it on today Um, I was diving the other day and um, damaged my uh, smartwatch but it monitors my blood pressure. It monitors my sleep patterns. It, it's the apps are getting smarter and smarter. The sensors are getting smarter and smarter to help me improve my health. I have a friend who recently retired from uh, Accenture Digital, and he's um, he was a CEO there, and he's now doing some other things. But one of the things that he has helped collaborate with is how do we take this IoT world and enable, um, uh, for lack of a better word, senior seniors or senior citizens to live a uh, a life where people don't have to physically be in their presence, but have the security through devices and other things, uh, a smart home. And that requires an immense amount of connectivity and all these other things. I just, without belaboring the point of going through all the different iterations that we've talked about on the show, I've had it in other places, it requires connectivity that's just on the drawing board now that, that we're still thinking about. And it's remarkable to me. So let's, in the few minutes that we have left, um, you have and represent an organization called the IEIC, which is the uh, Internet Ecosystem, uh, am I getting that right, Infrastructure Committee? Is that? Inno- innovation Committee. In- innovation Committee, sorry. Yeah. Um, what is the goal of that and how does it relate to the conversation that we've been having here today? Yeah, uh, so IEIC, or the Internet Ecosystem Innovation Committee, is uh, a completely independent uh, global committee, which is primarily formed uh, for for promoting diversification of the Internet, hardening of the Internet, and creating more interconnection ecosystems. Uh, And what I mean by interconnection ecosystems is I alluded to one earlier in Richmond, the... uh, QTS Richmond Map, which I had the honor of co-founding as a network access point. And that's where 
you know, the, the routing of traffic is taking place. You have multiple networks that are coming together, not only multiple networks in terms of quantity of network, but multiple types of networks. That's very important. You know, you have your traditional ISPs, you have your eyeball networks as they're called, or MSOs, which is, you know, the Cox and the Comcast of the world. Um, then you have content distribution networks like Akamai and Limelight and Cloudflare. Then you have software-defined networking companies like Packet Fabric and Megaport. Um, so, and of course, you know, you have the subsea cables that are bringing that traffic. And then you bring on uh, along with it uh, a neutral internet exchange, which primarily is a common platform that lets multiple parties exchange traffic with one another. You know, that kind of, you know, propels the growth of that ecosystem to the next level in terms of, you know, the subsea cables, a neutral internet exchange point. Uh, and that's primarily, uh, you know, what DKICS brought to the equation in uh, Richmond, Virginia, uh, as, uh, you know, they are um, a leading, uh, one of the world's leading data center neutral and carrier neutral internet exchange points where you have multiple parties connecting together, exchanging internet traffic. And that's uh, in essence, uh, you know, um, also part of our summit that we are, uh, that we are hosting uh, later uh, uh, in November, where you have, uh, you know, we're doing an official sort of a ribbon cutting of the DKIX Richmond platform. And then we have, uh, you know, the, in the summit itself, we have, um, industry luminaries from various parts of the world, various different sectors of the industries, different enterprises that are coming to share their experiences, to talk about the importance of that underlying infrastructure to their businesses. Uh, also from an economic growth standpoint, uh, how this infrastructure leads to the economic growth of a particular region um, so that's, uh, again, one of the key themes uh, of the summit as well. Uh, I plan on, I don't know if you know this, but I plan on attending. I cannot wait to hear. One of the things that really got me interested in is it's not just um, telecom people and, uh, you know, uh, people that I would see directly related to this, but industry uh, titans, really, and their um, and their innovation leaders, whether it's their CTOs or their just uh, thought leadership at these organizations, because pretty much every business on earth is a technology firm today. They just deploy their technology through a, a doorbell or through an automobile or through some other mechanism. And I want to hear not just the infrastructure people that are responsible for developing how the connectivity happens, but the users of it how are they using it? Where is their innovation taking them? And what are they asking of, um, of the infrastructure builders to provide for them? Yeah, so I think you, you hit the nail on the head when you said every company is a data company. In fact, I heard uh, Bank of America CEO say that we're no longer a bank, we are a data company. So uh, in terms of the summit, right? So it's after three years, uh, two and a half years after the pandemic mm -hmm. that we are getting together in person and really the, some of the key themes are gonna be centered around the growth of internet infrastructure itself over the last you know, two and a half years or so. I mean, I think there've been numerous discussions, numerous webinars on how the internet sustained 
the, during the pandemic, how the utilization went up the roof, uh, how more upgrades were happening, uh, you know, from an infrastructure perspective. So we're going to talk about that, what the implications of this infrastructure is for economic growth of regions uh, around the world, including Hindraiko, where the NAP was um, created uh, about four and a half, five years ago. What areas of digital transformation are, uh, you know, are in the forefront, the enterprises that are uh, focused on digitalization from healthcare to banking, to finance, to automobile, to academia, we're going to be touching on that. And then we're going to take a look at future, right? In terms of uh, AI, IOT, connected cars, what that really means. And another very important theme, which I feel very, very, very strongly about is the importance of middle mile, last mile connectivity, and really how you bridge that digital divide. You know, we take it for granted that, you know, we have this uh, one gig um, connection, uh, you know, fiber connection to the internet, um, and there are uh, unfortunately a lot of people who don't have that, who don't have, uh, you know, um, uh, the ability to do the kind of things that people do with uh, high-speed reliable internet. So that's that's one of the key themes as well. And in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the key speakers, so we have industries represented uh, you know some of the companies I can I can quickly touch upon. You know on the on the um, economic development side, we have the CEO of Virginia Economic Development Partnership uh, who will be there. We have Henrico County's uh, County Manager, Executive Director, uh, two Secretaries of State, uh, Secretary um, Karen Merrick, who is uh, the Secretary of Trade and Commerce, Secretary Lynn. Um, Lynn McDermott, Secretary of Administration. And then on the enterprise side, you know, we have um, companies ranging from Bank of America to Hilton to Cigna, uh, Freddie Mac, um, you know, who are all going to be talking about why this infrastructure matters to them. Uh, on the technology side, we have companies uh, such as QTS, DKIX, Arillion, which is one of the key uh, tier one uh, global ISPs Sunny Vision um, from Hong Kong. Um, of course, Aurelian is uh, from, uh, from Sweden. Um, then you have Siena as an equipment manufacturers, Aquaquam, Subsea Operator, Packet Fabric, and SDN Company, uh, Cassie Data Centers from Africa. So we have different regions around the world covered, and then we have different industries covered. And within the digital infrastructure sector, we have subsectors covered as well. And of course, NVIDIA as a chip manufacturer as well, will be there, a security services company, Netscope. So, I mean, um, as you can tell, we we worked hard on getting, uh, uh, you know, good coverage when it comes to, uh, you know, key luminaries as speakers for the summit. Well, we'll make sure we include a link to the summit so people can register and find out more, hopefully attend um, and follow up. Uh, what, what haven't we talked about today that we should have. I think we've, we've covered a pretty good uh, range of topics. Yeah, I think so. I think we have, and I think it's important, uh, you know, for, for us as a society, as a civilization, realize that, uh, you know, as, as we are more and more dependent on uh, the digital world, we're spending more time on our devices. I think it's that underlying infrastructure that makes it all happen. Mm -hmm. um, of course, you don't hear about this infrastructure. You don't see 
these kind of things on a, on a daily basis. You don't need to see data centers on a regular basis right. uh, for that matter, you know? So I think it's, it's also important to uh, sort of create more awareness about why this infrastructure matters to understand the convergence between what's happening between the wireless cell towers to the backhaul to central offices to the data center, the distribution of traffic thereon through various different networking companies and really, you know, for the industry to kind of come together and, um, and have that robust underlying infrastructure that helps build more interconnection ecosystems, help drive more diversity to the internet and ultimately helps Collect, helps us collectively to harden the internet as well. I became really interested in the IEIC and this idea. The more I thought about, um, to me, there's a connection, energy independence. And what I mean by that is there are parts of America that are sh- going to be struggling with brownouts and blackouts because of their aging infrastructure. And they've got to figure out how to solve that. And in a lot of places, there isn't money or an easy answer in those particular areas. In other parts of um, energy, we're using maybe fossil fuels that we want to find an alternative for because of the impact to the environment and carbon output to other parts of the world. Um, It is uh, the person that's supplying me the energy may be uh, asserting their geopolitical will and trying to shape my behavior. And if I don't comply, how's that going to impact my... um, my economy. And so for all of those reasons, energy infrastructure is drawing a lot of attention. Well, I don't want to wait until we're there at some point in time, maybe not directly related, connectivity is not emitting carbon or these other things, but how are we going to make sure that for ourselves, because this is as vital as energy in my mind, to have this connectivity. Our world, our groceries don't work. Um, the trucks don't run. The ports don't work. Nothing works if you do not have connectivity in addition to energy. And so I think the infrastructure, whatever its risks are, should be constantly looked at and evaluated, and we make sure that um, it, it gets the appropriate attention. So thanks for coming on today, and I look forward to seeing you uh, in the near future at the summit. Yeah, and at the summit as well, uh, of course, I'm, I gave the example early on about when we started talking about that phone call and the phone conversation being right. cir- circuit switching versus the email being packet switching. Right. So if if our audience want to meet the person who invented that protocol, Vint Surf will be personally there as well on November the 8th at the summit in Henrico. Well, Vinay, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. And we'll get this posted shortly. We'll have links to uh, to you. So people who want to reach out to you or connect to the summit will be available to them. Thanks for coming on the show. Sure. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. My great pleasure. And if you've enjoyed the show, please like, share, subscribe, and comment. We'll see you next time, everybody, on the QTS Experience. Take care.